The following Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, March 27th, 2023. The woman in your life will do what she must do to comfort you and calm you down and let you rest now. The woman in your life, she can rest so easily. She knows everything you do because the woman in your life is you. Everybody and welcome to Women's Spaces. My name is Elaine B. Holtz and I'm your host. With me at the board is my co-producer, my partner, my engineer, and just my best, best friend, Ken Norton. Good morning, Elaine. Good morning. What a beautiful day it is here in Sonoma County. And I'm really happy to be on the air to share so many wonderful things with you this today. Um, I have a very special guest for this show. Joining me on the phone will be Dr. Kim D. Hester Williams, who's a professor of literature at Sonoma State University. She teaches African-American literature from early to the co- contemporary period. Uh, additionally, uh, she is affiliate uh faculty member of the American Multicultural Studies Department, where uh, I, she teaches courses in ethnic literature, African-American literature and culture and language and, uh, and ethnicity, as well as film studies and women and gender studies. And what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the women's movement, uh, the impact it had, and also uh, what's happening today. You know, I mean, we're at the brink of losing many of the rights that we uh, that we got in the 70s, and it's just going to be a very, very interesting conversation conversation. Also, it's the last Monday of the month, and I decided let's do the pledge real quickly. And uh, actually, you know, I do the pledge when I come into the studio just to make sure that I'm kind of calm and relaxed, and I hope it does the same thing for folks out there. I found out the other day that I passed out over 7,000 cards, which just is amazing with the pledge on it. Uh, And you can go to www.womenspaces.com, and it's also a copy there that you can make a copy. Well, I want to do a shout-out and thank all of you who attended the National Organization for Women SoCo Chapter Zoom uh, that was sponsored also by Women's Spaces and also uh, Sonoma County Blacks United, especially a special shout-out to Nancy Rogers and also to Women's Spaces. It was a huge success with Dr. Catherine Meeks, Ph.D., talking about racism. I mean, it's one of the most honest conversations that I heard. And the Zoom, of course, was recorded, so you can go on to uh, the website, the Facebook of uh, now Sonoma County, and you can listen to the uh, to the uh, presentation. And also, you can go to the uh, National Women's Organization, the Sonoma County chapter, their uh, YouTube channel, and it's also on there. And I really believe it is worth listening to, especially if you're an educator or someone who is involved with the public. I think it gives a lot of good information and good insight into the struggle that African-American human beings are having and also some of the ways that we can become allies, uh, pilgrims, partners, all, all kinds of ways that we can, we can support uh, movements. 
And, and I also want to do a shout out. You know, on Saturday, there was a, an anti-war movement uh, uh, rally downtown. It was Stop All Wars, which I thought was amazing. And a lot of people did presentations. Ken and I were a little bit late, but I got a hold of uh, my dear friend Susan Lamont and got some of her, some of the things that she said at the rally. And I, I just thought it was very important to share it. And, and it's interesting, you know, there's a song that I play often, By My Silence I Give My Consent. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, um, you know, when you start thinking about it. I mean, if war was the answer, um, <laughs> hey, we would have had peace a, a long time ago. But, you know, I, I missed one thing. Before we go into uh, the uh, anti-war uh, uh, event that happened in downtown Santa Rosa, I have a special shout-out to do. Uh, the Lyme Foundation that fulfills a lifetime dream for People who uh, who really uh, want to to get it, to do something, young men and young women who want to have a skill, and it's. I want to do a shout out to Le- the Letitia Hankey, who is the founder of the Lion Foundation. She's helping many young people, and there's many many examples of that. You can go to her website www dot the lime foundation dot org and see one all the wonderful things that they do well recently they had a fundraiser at the shady oak barrel house <laughs> it's a great name here in sonoma county and it's, it was that so you think sonoma county has talent and a young a bunch of young people uh, performed and it was very very interesting and in order to vote you had to pay like a dollar per vote it was a, a wonderful fundraiser and i was so excited because i wanted to do a Congratulations to Anya Davenport, who was the first place winner. Uh, she sang the song Gifted, written by her grandmother, Sydney uh, Davenport. Uh, I remember I had her on the show several weeks ago talking about the NAACP of Sonoma County and Youth Works fashion show that happened last month. Boy, this woman, this young woman is really on the move. And think about it. She is only 10 years old. Well, congratulations, Anya. Any, and if you, if you know of any other winners of this, uh, th- this wonderful fundraiser, please email me at www.womenspaces.com. So I, I had to go a little bit out of order, but you know, every once in a while, you know, you're, we're, we're live here in Sonoma County and all kinds of things happen when you're live. Anyway, let's get let's get back to the war rally. Um, I want to shout out to my de- I want to do a shout out to my dear friend Susan Lamont and all those who helped her organize the event. And I just want to I just want to read a little a little thing that she read. You know, it, it's very interesting when you listen to the news today. You know, there's so much there's so much misinformation. You know, and when you look back to the past, especially during the Vietnam War, when Robert McNamara came out with his book and said it was a mistake, and we knew at the time students were the, I mean, I was talking to Ken before we went on the air, you know, because he was very involved with Earth Day when he went to San Jose State, and we were talking about how they shut down the schools and how, you know, uh, young people were burning their draft cards. They didn't want to go to, uh, to Vietnam. They felt it was an unfair war, that it should not happen. And here we are, some what, some 40 years later, and then all of a sudden, uh, Robert McNamara comes out and says, yeah, it was a mistake. And, and the saddest part for me was is that when people think of President Johnson, they often think about the escalation of the uh, Vietnam Wars, particularly when there were promises made that there was going to be no es- escalation. And what happened is he doesn't get the attention for all the wonderful uh, human resource programs that he helped create, like the Comprehensive Employment and Training 
Act. I mean, I remember I was part of that, and we we put more more young people, particularly p- uh, young people of color, to work. We put them in uh, trades uh, trade schools. Also, if you wanted to go to college, I mean, lawyers. I went to so many graduations; it was just amazing at that time. I mean, it really was. And uh, you know, but and but what happened was is there's a lot of misinformation that's going on, and a lot of promises that are being made. And I think that's what happens today that we have no trust. We have no trust for what we hear. I know for myself with this whole Ukraine issue and, and Russia, I'm a little bit confused. You know, and, and so what I particularly liked about the rally, it was just stop all wars. You know, there was no stop this, stop that, but just stop all wars. And and there was a little reminder that, that I had here that I thought was interesting. There was a song by Tom Paxton, and it was interesting because Susan Lamont was telling me that she actually sang this. But I, I just want to just, you know, war, war is ugly. You know, and here, here we go. Here's what Tom Paxson wrote. Well, here I sit in this rice paddy wondering about Big Daddy and know that Lyndon loves me so, yet how sadly I remember way back yonder in November when he said I never have to go. Lyndon Johnson told the nation... Have no fear of escalation. I'm trying everyone to please, though it isn't really war. We're sending 50,000 more to help save Vietnam from the Vietnamese. (laughs) Listen to that. To help save Vietnam from the Vietnamese, it was actually a civil war. And it's something to think about. You know, and here we are at war again, and trillions, I mean, can you think, since since 2000, I think since the Iraq war, we've spent trillions of dollars. Can you imagine what would happen if we would take that money and invest it in our youth, invest it in our infrastructure, invent it? it, I mean, you know what I mean, folks. And through all this, through all this uh, conversation, the anti-war, there's no anti-war movement. That's, That's the statement these days. But I found a wonderful quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, and it really gave me something to think about. Because, and especially after watching Dr. Uh, Catherine Meeks talking about, you know, the inner self, the, we have to change ourselves. We have to go within and change ourselves and begin to see, take responsibilities for what our attitudes are. And yesterday when we went to, I go to Unity Church here in Santa Rosa, and again they talked about going inside, going to the inner to develop yourself as a better person so you can go out into the world and really become a peacemaker. And so this is a very interesting quote from Eleanor Roosevelt when she asking the question when will our conscience grow so tender that we will act to prevent human misery rather than avenge it think about that we will prevent human misery it reminds me of Maslow's you know hierarchy you know make sure everybody's fed and has shelter and water you know prevent human misery rather than avenge it you know, the most interesting things about war, and you can see it today, all wars are fought in the name of peace. And I believe, I believe that if we, if we would, if war would have created peace, we would have had peace a long time ago. Well, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a musical break, and then I'm going to do a little bit of, about our history as ourselves, and we'll do the pledge, and then we'll have another break, and then we'll bring Dr. Williams on. But what before? We're going to take a musical break now, and the song I will be playing is what I believe is the song that tells it all when it comes to war. And that's The Masters of War. It was written by uh, Bob Dylan, and it's sung by Julie uh, Julie, uh, Collins. 
Judy Collins. Boy, I'll tell you, sometimes my mouth just doesn't come out right or the words don't come out right. When we return, we'll be doing the Women's Faces Pledge and do a little bit of history. So let's go ahead, Ken, and let's play our Masters of War. Interesting line. Well, for you just joining, uh, I want to remind my listeners that the opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of the station, its board of directors, its members, and 
Women's Spaces. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holt. And one of my favorite segments in the show, of course, is our our history is our strength. And why do I say that? Because if we look back on history, we can see all the good things, and we can also see all the mistakes we made. And the good things we can get make better, and the mistakes we made, we can maybe undo them. And one of the mistakes we're making continually is avoiding the environment, avoiding the uh, idea of medical uh, pain, uh, medical coverage for all of our citizens in lieu of going to war. I mean, trillions of dollars. It's just, it's just, it's mind-blowing to me. Well, in our history, our strength, I have something that happened on March 31st. This is the 27th, so this was March 31st, 1888. 1888, before women even had the vote, uh, the National Council of Women of the U.S. organized by Susan B. Anthony, Clara Burton, Julia Ward Howe, and Sojournia Truth, among others, the oldest non-secretarian women's organization in the United States that was called the National Council of Women of the United States. And that was pre before the the suffrage. This was like kind of the beginning of the suffrage. And then this, I love to I love to announce this every single year. And and why is March thirty first, seventeen seventy six? Abigail Adams writes to her husband John, who is helping to frame the Declaration of Independence, and cautions. Listen to this. Remember the ladies. And there's another historical thing, you know, this statement that she made to her husband, remember the women. You know, we were we were not we were considered property. I mean, we were considered property. We had no rights. Our husband had total rights over us and total rights over our children. And what's so interesting is what's so interesting about this is when you think about it, when you think about it, when they had the first meeting of the Continental Congress, when they were writing the Constitution, they invited, they were very uh, influenced. Benjamin Franklin was very influ- influenced by the Iroquois Nation. And they asked the Native Americans of that particular tribe to come and to talk about how their Constitution and what they do to give the people, the uh, the United States, some ideas about what, what a democracy, what a, a Constitution might look like in a free nation. And the first thing the Native Americans asked was, where are the women? Now, why did they ask that question? Because it was the grandmothers of the tribes that made the decisions who the chiefs were or whether or not they would go to war. I mean, can you imagine all you grandmothers out there, all of a sudden they came to you about going to war? What would you say? Say, hey, sit down and talk about it, guys, before you get there. If we can't do it, maybe that's something we have to do, but let's try to work. Let's try to resolve first. And also to put the children first, seven generations, to look at seven generations. I mean, it might have been a whole different world. And it might have been a whole different world if John Adams had listened to his wife and listened to the ladies. Well, lots to think about, but that's what Women's Spaces is all about. And now we're going to do the Women's Spaces Pledge, and we're going to do it really quickly because we have a lot, a lot going on when I bring on Dr. Williams. And so let's go ahead, Ken. Let's do the pledge together. And the whole idea of the pledge is so women can stand up so they have the self-confidence to make it make noise, you know, tell people, you know, I'm against war. I don't like it. Find another way, you know, find another way in this world, you know. And as women, we are the ones who bear the children. It's very, very important that we have the stance. So let's go. Would you join me, Ken, in doing the Women's Spaces Pledge? Yeah. 
Okay, first I'll say it, and then I'll, I'll say it, and then, then we'll say it together. Okay, here we go. The Women's Spaces Pledge. My self-esteem... My self-esteem does not depend does not depend on anything on anything outside of me outside of me. My self-esteem my self-esteem depends depends on my relationship on my relationship with myself with myself and my higher power and my higher power. Boy, isn't that empowering, Ken? Yeah, yes, that, it, is. it really feels it really feels good. It really does. My self-esteem does not depend on anything outside of me. It depends on my relationship with my higher power, with myself and my higher power. I don't know what you call a higher power. You know, some people believe in a stone. Some people believe in Jesus. Some people believe in God. I mean, but it's, there's, there's an energy in this earth that we're all part of. So my self-esteem does not depend on anything outside of me. My self-esteem depends on my relationship with myself and my higher power. Wow, I just love that. Well, we're going to take another musical break. And the song that I'm going to play, to me, is such a positive song. I love it. It's by Earth Mama. It's called uh, You Have Come a Long Way Later. Ladies, oh God. when we return, uh, spending the rest of the hour with me will be Dr. Uh, Kim D. Hester Williams, professor of literature at Sonoma State University. She also teaches African-American literature from early to uh, the contemporary period. And we're going to talk about the women's movement, where it stands, its impact, and maybe how we move into the future. So let's go ahead and play that song, Ken, and we'll get a hold of Dr. Williams. That rocks the cradle has got to rock the boat. It's a line that I remember from the diary Grandma wrote as she rode the train to Washington to stand and speak her mind. She made some waves that brought a change.
Remember, we have a long way to go, and also we're looking at the possibility of totally losing our rights over our own bodies, the right to choose, a fundamental right. Anyway, welcome back. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holtz. And without further ado, I want to introduce my first guest. Joining me on the phone is Dr. Kim Hester-Williams, who's a professor of English and American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Welcome to Women's Spaces. Thank you so much for having me, Elaine. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I am so happy. Is it okay if I call you Kim, Dr. Williams? Please, by all means. And, <laughs> yeah. and also, I would like to tell our audience just a little bit about you. And, you know, I have a bio here that I've used before. And if there's any corrections after I finish, please please feel free to correct me if that's okay. Yes, of course. Dr. Kim Hester-Williams is a professor of English and American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. She currently serves as chair of the American Multicultural Studies in addition to teaching 19th century American literature, African American literature, and culture, and is an affiliate faculty in film studies and women and gender studies at Sonoma State University. She is co-author with Leilani Nishami of Racial Ecologies, a book collection of interdisciplinary uh, essays on race and environment published by the University Press of Washington Press in 2018. Her poetry is grounded in long tradition of African-American women's poets. She is currently an active member of the American Canyon Seroptimist Association, an organization that supports the economic empowerment and vitality of all women through education, training, and solidarity. Dr. Hester takes great pride in merging her teaching, scholarship, and research about racial and gender equality with commitment to community service, social justice, and an act enacting an equitable, sustainable society in both personal and communal practices. Well, that is wonderful. That is wonderful. So anything you'd like to add or correct? Well, thank you very much. So since you had that biography, it was wonderful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Elaine. Um, I I am no longer the chair of American Multicultural Studies of the American Multicultural Studies Department. Now it's Dr. Michael Ezra is the chair. Um, but I am still a very um, committed member of that, faculty member of that department. Uh, I also, our film studies has shifted at Sonoma State, so um, I, I will say that the communication studies department has, has taken over film studies, and uh, I, I will teach one or two classes for them when they, they finally get it underway, but they have a lot of support um, it, for that program, and they're going to do wonderful things with it, and I just want to give a plug out to them as they are continuing to um, work with the community, actually, to develop a film studies program, so... Well, thank you. Corrections are important, and also thank you so much for the plug um, for the Seroptimus Sisters. I I love 
that organization so much, and I just agreed to be secretary. <laughs> I was reluctant to hold any office, and, and because just I'm, I'm very busy, but also just a little intimidated um, because those ladies are just so powerful and and just so um, impressive. But I was asked by the outgoing um, chair if I would uh, if I would serve as, as secretary, and I thought I love these ladies and what they do so much. I, I can't say no. Well, congratulations. <laughs> you know, I, well, I haven't been elected yet. The, the new officers are going to be elected soon. But um, and I, I will I, if I have access to a recording of this program, I'm definitely going to play it for them because they would be delighted. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, better secretary than treasure. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm yeah, the tre- I'm the treasurer now for the National Organization of Women, and it, it always makes me laugh because I can barely I can barely balance my own checkbook. But anyway, <laughs> before we begin, before we begin, Kim, you know, you you just you have so much to share. But I'd like to know what motivated you, you know, to choose this particular area of interest, and what are some of the hopes uh, that you have to pass along with these valuable ideas, and 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 what kind of encouragement, you know, what you know. You, your power is grounded in the long tradition of, of African American. You call it womanist poetics. Talk about mm-hmm. that aspect of the uh, inspiration and anything that you'd like to add. I mean, where, where did all this come from for you? I would say that the very um, the the origins of my interest in the work that I do academically, um, especially uh, as a, as a as a professor, uh, really came from my mother. Uh, my mother was a a womanist. Um, she was a feminist slash womanist. Um, she was very strong. Her example, the example that she set of, first of all, uh, a woman who was um, in an abusive relationship, really, with my stepfather, but um, who always worked um, outside the home. My mother always worked outside the home to support her family and to sort of um, manage the uh, dysfunction <laughs> that was going on with my stepfather, especially, um, which affected us financially as well as in other profound ways, that she showed me how to move through the world even with, uh, even dealing with trauma, um, how to move through the world with power and grace. And so I never forgot that example. I, I've always, and still to this day, adore my mother, and I see her as a very wise person. Um, who didn't, by the way, graduate, even have her high school diploma, but who was in one of the most intelligent, wise people that I know, for sure, well, um, she, without a doubt. She and must have so, been really, she must have really been proud when you became a doctor, my goodness. Yeah, yeah she's very proud. She's very proud, Mama. And so I, I would say that, that that started me off on a path of one of, one of hard work, um, but also um, a lot of empathy. I think of the last time I was on, I probably didn't tell this story, but I tell it often. She's like, you still tell that story? No. But I, I told it recently um, to a pastor of a church that I just joined, a very progressive church in Napa, Crosswalk Community Church, shout out. <laughs> but um, it's the story of my mom. I was very small, and, of course, as I said, my mom worked all the time. She worked um, outside of the home and um, worked all, all the time. <laughs> She, she did, and um, because we were working class, and she had to do that to, for us to survive. And so uh, she worked downtown. She worked as a housekeeper um, and then worked her way up to being an executive housekeeper 
in the hotels downtown, the very fancy um, hotels downtown in downtown Los Angeles. And one time she would take me sometimes downtown to go shopping or to go eating, um, you know, lunch, all of which was a very special treat. And this one particular time, and sometimes she would take us downtown out of necessity because she didn't have a, a babysitter. So one time she took me downtown with her. It was just her and I. And, um, you know, there's a homeless problem in downtown Los Angeles that people don't know, um, just like in many other major cities and all across the country um, in in the United States. And so at, even at that point in the 70s, there's this homeless problem in, in, um, in people who are unhoused. And this one um, African-American man was in front of us, and he had defecated on himself. Oh, my goodness. And the stench was very, very um, prominent. It was very noticeable. And I, as a child, I was very small. I, I went to go kind of, I, I winced. And and my mom looked at me. She saw me reacting. And she whipped around. And she said, don't you dare. That could be Jesus. And that's what she said. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Um, because it had a profound effect on me, because what it said to me was, and she didn't go into a long soliloquy. She didn't, you know, explain herself. That's all she said was, don't you dare. That could be Jesus. Right. Don't judge somebody. It, exactly. What she meant was you do not have the right to judge this man. You don't know his story. You don't know anything about him. And here you are looking at him with dis- disdain and, and judgment. And don't you dare do that. Wow, what a lesson, you know, because also, also, you know, because that's what well, happens when people look at you if you're a different religion, a different color, you know, when there, there's all kinds of judgment. It's so important. In fact, it's, it's really interesting. My birthday was on March 18th. It's interesting that you should say that. And I studied with Unity, and they had like 40 days of Lent where you let go. We're letting, we're letting go of let, letting go, just, just to be able to let go. And on my birthday, it was let go of judgment. Mm. You know, it's the same thing exactly, but your mother, you know, I just want to, what is your mother's name? Mary. Mary, we're going to do a shout out for you because you have produced one of the most beautiful daughters in the world. So thank you. I mean, wonderful. Wonderful. Happy belated birthday, Elaine. Happy belated birthday. Well, anyway, you know, it's it's really interesting how how we how we start, you know, how we get, how we go, what what motivates us, and then here you are now at Sonoma State, you know, working with women and gender studies. You know, you kind of have your, you know, you have to kind of have your eye on everything that's going on, and and. I'm, I'm really curious, you know, I think the most important thing about this conversation is to talk about, you know, what do you believe is happening with the women's movement? What's happening on the, on the college, uh, the campuses and how, how are students reacting to the dangers of losing choice and all the other issues that are going on now? Especially with the yeah. ERA, I mean, we still don't have an equal rights amendment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I, I love this question because this, semester, I'm very fortunate to be able to t- um, be able to teach um, a women's writers course, which I'm teaching as feminist writers, an undergraduate course, and to have uh, a graduate course, which is feminist literature and theory. Um, so I'm just really immersed in women's writing and, 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 and women's, um, you know, lives, lived experiences as reflected in literature and, and also in feminist theory. So, um, and just feminism the idea of feminism, the practice of feminism. So I love this question, and I 
think um, also I will backtrack to say I, I always was my academic training is 19th the 19th century uh, American you know literature and culture and which is a huge field a very popular one and very huge because so much happened in the 19th century two of the main things that happened in the 19th century were of course chattel slavery and then the you know civil war and at the end of chattel slavery but it lasted the for almost the entire century, and of course that coupled with the suffrage movement, the women's suffrage movement. And so those are two things that I teach all the time. I incorporate it in everything that I do, and it responds to your question. Um, the oppression of women is longstanding. It's something that has existed um, for um, time immemorial, actually. Um, outside of the U.S. culture, in, in many, many cultures and many societies for a very long time. And so I think the idea of undoing that um, in a short amount of time is not realistic, frankly, um, because so much work has to be done to change people's thinking about women's capabilities, about women's rights, um, about who women are and why they want to be free. <laughs> um, that's just an idea that just has not been accepted generally in society. And I do teach students that. I actually show the John Wayne movie McClintock, and I don't know if you know it, but it's from the 60s. And it's a movie in which um, famously or infamously, I should say, Miss McClintock, Catherine, is spanked. And we teach all the time. It's very famous. The scene is very famous. Um, you can Google it, and you'll, it'll come right up. And so I teach them that to show them what kind of way, the way, the, the many ways, physical, psychological, emotional, social, cultural, that women are oppressed. And so it, it's just not very, it's not surprising to me as a 19th century Americanist that women, that the ERA hasn't passed. I don't find that surprising at all. And as I did in 2016, when I literally placed a monetary bet with two female colleagues, also English professors, that Hillary Clinton would not be elected. And they looked at me and they said, what? We, we're going to, I said, I'll bet you any money. I bet you, let's bet $5. And I did, I bet $5. And they thought I was insane. They looked at me and said, you, this is incredibly, and what you're saying is just not possible. She is locked in. There's no way. She has all the experience. She has all the everything. And I said, but no, you're not understanding history. You're not understanding the history of misogyny and sexism. And I knew, I absolutely knew with, with absolute certainty that she would not be elected. You know, it's, And everything that I knew came to fruition. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I do a little segment in the show every week. I call it Our History is Our Strength. And I, I bring up in the past, from the present, you know, different things that women are doing. And I say always before that the reason our history is so important is because we find out the mistakes and we find uh -huh. out the good things. So if the mistakes we can undo and the good things we can get better. But you understood history so yeah. you could make that prediction because I know myself, I consider myself a feminist. And when, when all that came down, do you know, I couldn't even watch the biography of Hillary Clinton because I knew that was going to come up. That's how upsetting it was when it happened. But yet you made the prediction because you understood the history of what went on with women in the past. Amazing. I have to, my hat goes off to you. I mean, history is so important. I cannot emphasize that enough. 
Yes, it's crucial, and it is a tool, and it can be weaponized against us, but it can also be weaponized in our favor. And I think through all of the critical race theory, all of the anti-LGBTQAI, um, IA, excuse me, um, hate that we see coming from Florida and DeSantis and the battles over education and what should be taught and what shouldn't be taught, that's all exactly what you just articulated, all about the struggle over history and who's going to get the, the who is going to be the purveyor of history who's going to represent our history how will it be represented how will it be remembered how should it be represented and remembered and and they know and i say they as in the conservative right movement and men in general men who are leading that movement and some of their female accomplices i'll call it that um are basically they know that that's where the power is the power is in being able to control the narrative and the narrative is inextricably linked to history, just as you articulated. Can, can I ask you a question? You know, I, 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 this is all of a sudden came up in my mind. Can you just give a short explanation of, you know, so people can get a better understanding of the, you know, critical race theory is so important. Can you just give a little bit of a definition of it? Um, I can. Critical race theory actually comes from legal studies, and that's something that people just don't understand. They don't understand that critical race studies is very specific, and it's about basically how the law um, is, uh, is, has racial bias. Um, and that there is, there is a history that informs jurisprudence. And Kimberly Crenshaw is one of many scholars of a very specific and um, distinct school of scholars, right, who were studying this from the legal perspective, who were studying race um, and gender and other um, categories of identity and difference, uh, but specifically race, how race is ensconced in the law as it is, right, from the very beginning. So I'm giving you a very technical definition, and I could have given you an even more technical definition, but I'm going to stick with that one because I think it's user-friendly. What, very... what do you think the fear is? What What is the fear of it? I mean, I don't understand. I mean, it, it, to be critical is not negative. You know, to criticize, you give it, you know, it's like if you give a critique of something, so you try to understand it. You try to see the 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 minuses and the pluses. So what do you think is the fear? What, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? And why are people so afraid of this? And why well, are they the banning so many books, you know, doing some <laughs> yeah. of the things that they're... I mean, what, what do you think is the basic fear? Well, and, and let me say, people should actually research critical race theory because it really com comes about the 70s and 80s primarily. And again, it's very specific and it's very, very scholarly. It, that has nothing to do with the banning, in my opinion, because people are confused. The banning of the books, which has been happening, you know, just before the pandemic, we were having discussions about how um, in the Southwest and particularly in Texas and Arizona was the main, you know, um, point, flashpoint for banning all the Chicano and Latino studies books, for banning Chicano and Latino literature, right? What's the fear about literature? What's, like you said, the fear of being critical even as we study? You're speaking from the perspective of an educator, a person who understands how important education is. People who are pushing back against this 
their fear is that, and I guess I'll put it to you in some very simplistic terms, Elaine, and the terms that I feel very um, passionate about. They're afraid of the truth. They're afraid of people discovering the truth. The truth about America, the United States specifically, the truth about the origins of the United States, and the truth about the fact that people like you and I, marginalized people, including, you know, LGBTQIA people, are not going to rest until we are free. Women will not rest, will not lay down, will not give up until we achieve our full rights. That means that we will be struggling and we will continue to struggle, and that struggle is is about the truth, and it's an uncomfortable truth. It's an uncomfortable truth. People are uncomfortable with the truth. And so um, that's what that's what the answer to your question. It's not so much that they don't want to be critical, um, because that's that's a different um, that's a different situation. That's a different question. It's a different issue because that has to do with really how education functions. Like now we're getting into Plato, right? We're getting into Socrates. We're getting into like you know the philosophy of education, what it's for, how it functions. That's really not where these resistors are coming from. They're coming from the perspective of we don't want people to have this information because we are afraid of what they will do with it. But also it's they, quite don't, simple. they don't like critical thinkers because, you know, you, you're questioning when you to be to do a critique, you have to question what's going on. And once yeah. you question something, people have to have an answer. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of disturbing. You know, I was I was downtown and I, I met this one beautiful woman. I mean, very bright. We were at the protest together and she had about six or seven tattoos on her. And I told her, I looked at her, I says, do you know that having those tattoos on your body is because you have a right to choose? When I was going to high school and I tattooed myself, <laughs> man, I'm telling you, it was a riot in my house. Oh, you know, my mother had them removed. I mean, I I had I had no rights. I mean, we had, you know, mm-hmm. women don't don't recognize this. Well, let's let's come into the modern era a little bit because what's so wonderful is I know that you have a beautiful teenage daughter. What is her name? Uh, Alana. Alana. Oh, my. You know, yes. some, that's so funny. You know, I mean, you're going to think, you know, I'm a Pisces and I love I used to love mermaids. And what I used to call myself was Alana. That was my mermaid name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, you share a side with my mother, Mother Mary. She is, um, she is a Pisces. Oh, really? What? Yes. What? what when's my her mother. birthday? March third. March third. Well, happy belated birthday, Mother Mary. May you have many, many more. I mean, my mother. Listen, my mother had an impact on me, and it wasn't until I really got into therapy and I finally said to myself, "My God, I was so lucky to have that woman." But anyway, let's 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 come into the modern. You have this beautiful teenager, Alana, and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. What impact do you believe the woman, the women's movement, is having on her, and 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 what? How does she? How does she look at the future? I mean, what are some of the conversations? Here you are, a mother who is a teacher, a scholar. You know, you have all this information to share with her. How how is she receiving it? And what are some of the ways that you think these things are impacting her and her and her generation? Uh, I feel like the generation, as they call it, Generation Z. And my 26-year-old um, daughter, who's, um, you know, uh, and apparently a, a millennial, I feel like the, 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 these generations are very much more aware. 
and conscientious and fiery. That's the way I would describe the 17-year-old Alana, especially. She is fiery, and she is very opinionated, and she's not afraid to express her opinion. And I think that is because of the women's movement. And that's because of what I learned. Hallelujah. Yes, hallelujah. Amen. Um, You know, she, uh, um, I took an intro to feminism class at UC Santa Cruz when I was an undergraduate from Bettina Aptheker. Shout out to her. That was the first, my first introduction to feminism. I had never heard of the word. I was raised by a feminist who didn't identify herself as such. Um, But, you know, it was the first time that I got the technical definition, the history of it. And I mean, I feel like that, um, that politicized me, that, that made, formed me into who I am today as an instructor and as a mother. I had that, um, you know, experience going into motherhood. And so I raised both of, of our, our daughters, you know, and, and, and I would say my husband as well as, um, you know, as a feminist, as feminist. And they very much embraced that identity. They, they, and my 17 year old, when the Dobbs decision was passed, we were texting each other, um, and, um, or when the Dobbs decision came down, I should say, we were texting each other. They were posting on Instagram. They constantly do post on Instagram, mainly about things that have to do with women's rights, um, and responsibilities as a feminist. Because we always talk about our rights, which we should talk about, but what are our responsibilities as feminists? Because we, we have a lot of responsibility as feminists. And, and my daughter and I just joined a group, um, that is, um, it's called Sex Ed, um, Sex Ed Justice Project. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and it's basically an, a local organization that's formed in response to the Dobbs decision, um, to do exactly what it says. Provide uh, Kim, 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 can you just explain a little bit what the Dodd decision was, just to give people a little hit, a little upgrade on history? Um, well, it, Roe versus Wade, which um, passed in 1973, I believe I'm getting that um, correct. So correct me right. if I'm wrong. No, that's right. I know you, you know it, Elaine. Um, but um, that that um, basically gave women the constitutional right to an abortion. That there could be no more uh, denying uh, women of abortion and no more sort of punitive action against women and against uh, health care providers, um, um, doctors and, and um, other health care providers um, who um, provided abortion services. And so last year, I guess it was now, is it, tw- it's 2023, so no, it's 2022 that the Dobbs decision was passed in 2022. Um, and that was ba- it. Basically, just overturned um, the constitutional um, amendment and right to abortion, and it basically said that it's left up to the states now to decide. And that was, you know, this whole um, federal versus state. You know that that the Federalist Papers. We can go on and on about that history. That's a that's a constant battle in the United States about who should be the purveyor of individual rights. Right. Um, Because that's what we're talking about now. We're talking about women's individual rights, their rights as an individual. Um, And so that's the Dobbs decision in a nutshell said that, no, the Supreme Court doesn't have the should not have made that decision, should not have decided that, you know, nationwide women would have that protection. Let's call it that 
that protection and that right. And so now it's up to the states. We're safe, quote unquote, safe in California because we live in a progressive state. That is not going to, Governor Newsom has made it very clear that not only is he going to continue to protect, um, uh, and our legislature as well, protect a woman's right to choose, um, but that he will also make this a safe harbor for other women from other states that don't have that, um, that right, um, that where that right has been taken away. So that, that's, that's, uh, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know about oh, the no, legal that, that, that's good enough. No, you know, that, that's perfect. And, you know, I hate to interrupt you, but I have to because we're coming very quickly to the end of this segment. And I would like any last words that you would like to say, any seminars you're doing, any kind, anything that's on your mind, and also a website, how they can get a hold of you if they have any questions, or I know you do presentations. That's how we met. We met at Petaluma. It was one of the best presentations I've seen in a long time. And uh, so go ahead, Kim, last words and, and your website. Um, so my website, I, I don't have a website, but you can contact me through. Um, I don't have an individual website, but you can contact me through Sonoma State University through either the English department's website at sonoma.edu. You can look uh, up. Uh, the website through there, or the American Multicultural Studies website. Um, I recommend the English website on the Sonoma.edu because then it has a whole description of my work. Um, And also I will give you my email, which people from the public often contact me when I did the reparations interview for the um, Press Democrat. Uh, People contacted me through Williams at Sonoma. And you're happy to just send me an individual email and I'll be, you know, I will, I do respond. Uh, uh, you said that you were, you're involved with the reparation. Well, no, I'm not involved with it, but, um, one of the reporters for the press Democrat did a wonderful story, by the way, a three part story, uh, in the press Democrat for, um, to talk about the task force. There's a California task force that has been charged with, um, researching, uh, the history of, of uh, African Americans in California and beyond, and whether or not the state should consider uh, providing reparations in the in the form of monetary reparations, in the form of other kinds of programs to repair, which is what the word reparations means, the damage, the harm, and the ongoing harm. Um, that is done and was done by chattel slavery by the by the institution of legal cattle slavery in the United States. Well, thank so, you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim. Yes, of course. This was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And I think that there's another conversation that we're going to have that you maybe you can explain that process, and I will I'll be in touch with you. Of course, I'd be happy to do that. And thank you so much for a wonderful, for a wonderful, wonderful interview. And my much, much success to your daughters. I mean, it's just so impressive what you have to say. I mean, it's wonderful having daughters that we can pass all this on. So thank you so much for a wonderful yeah. interview. Agreed. Thank you so much for having me, Elaine. Oh, my pleasure. My I love pleasure. This. I love your show, and I adore you, as you know. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. The feeling is mutual. Well, that's it for our show. 
Thank you to Dr. Kim D. Hester Williams, a professor of literature at Sonoma State University, a wonderful dynamic woman. She teaches uh, courses in ethnic literature, American, uh, African American literature and culture, and works with uh, women's studies and gender studies at Sonoma State. A reminder, tell your friends, Women's Spaces will be aired again this evening at 11 o'clock. I'm so excited I get to listen to my own program. I'm available for speaking engagements, and if you have any announcements, like anniversaries, birthdays, or anything, do not hesitate to email me at elainebholtz at gmail.com. Remember, our children are the future, and we must never lose sight of that. This is Elaine B. Holtz. You've been listening to Women's Spaces. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to being with you the next time. The previous Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, March 27, 2023.